This is the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCrary. Last week, the University of Southern California became the latest campus to fall victim to the rapidly growing phenomenon of independent IFCs, as at least eight fraternities announced their intention to sever ties with the university and operate independently. In our last episode on the trust gap, we briefly explored the phenomenon of independent IFCs. As students, alumni, and headquarters staff see less and less value from their relationship with campuses, the decision to walk away from campus recognition becomes easier and easier to make. To help us understand this growing phenomenon from a broader perspective, I invited Judd Horace, the CEO of the North American Interfraternity Conference, onto the podcast to chat about how this is playing out nationally, how the NIC views these independent IFCs, and what can be done to slow this trend down. All right, Judd, welcome to the Dyad Podcast. How are you, man? I'm great. How are you, Gentry? I'm good. I'm so glad to finally have you on here. You're one of the people I thought it would be fun to get on here at some point. And with, with recent developments, uh, it, it worked out uh, that, that this was a, a timely uh, opportunity for us to jump on and, and talk about stuff going on in the, in the interfraternal world. So yeah, glad you could finally get on here. That's great. You know, I've been told I have a face for a podcast, so this is really. <laughs> I've been told the same thing, which is why we do not do uh, video on any of these. It's strictly, strictly audio output. Right, right, right. Oh, first off, how are things with the NIC? What's going on up there? Oh, you know, it's, I always tell people there's always something going on, but uh, we're actually a week away from our annual meeting. We've got some important votes coming up and we got another research project that's going to be uh, unveiled at the uh, meeting that Patrick Biddix's team's done. It's really good stuff. We, they're going to also be looking at we did a project with the Piazza Center and, and the University of Tennessee on a comprehensive hazing literature review. I saw an early draft of it. Um, you know, they did some really cool work you guys are going to hear about as far as looking at how it connects to bullying, how it connects to research and psychology. I'm just convinced that all of this stuff we inherit um, is is starts well before college. As a matter of fact, I could do a whole other podcast on we have uh, the journalist from the Wall Street Journal who did the article on the lost um, men in college, basically. He mm-hmm. is speaking with us. Uh, he's just, he and another gentleman we've got coming on who's a headmaster of an all-boys school is really talking about the issues of boys. And I think the NIC can and should spend a lot more time talking about middle school and high school boys because, uh, you know, I can't say it enough. Everything that we deal with good and bad is inherited uh, before they get to college. And- Absolutely. We, Josh and I had a call a couple of weeks ago with a researcher who's interested in using some of our instruments to study brotherhood with uh, all men, uh, Catholic high schools. Uh, you know, so he's, he's a headmaster at a, at a Catholic boys' school and is very interested in this concept of brotherhood. It gets thrown around a lot, talked about a lot, but, but really are there are elements of that that are healthy, unhealthy, right? I mean, we see the same things with, 15 year old kids in, in all Catholic schools as we do with, with college men. It's a, there, there's some definite connections there. Well, I, I know the purpose of today's podcast is not about, you know, the larger NIC agenda around research, but we have spent a lot of energy building out um, more knowledge on what is going on with boys, uh, 
what, you know, what are the positives that fraternities bring to society? I think a lot of people have started in the past with the research question of what's wrong, what needs to be fixed. And yep. there's a group of us that have asked questions of researchers ago. I answer is what value do we bring? And that's been very positive, very insightful. I, I'm convinced that if we really want to address the future of fraternity and how we help young men, we've got to keep studying further down boys. Um, part of it is I'm raising a 13 year old boy and I'm raising <laughs> a 16 year old girl. And I see how the 16 year old boys treat the 16 year old girl. And I see how the 13 year old boy is growing. And uh, I just, all of a sudden light bulbs go off for me about my job. My nephew is a college freshman at Mercer University, and he was texting me today about the fraternities there. I said, well, I've got a couple of those in my data set. Let me let me see what the numbers say here. So look out, Mercer. You got you got one coming your way. Yeah, real quick before we jump. I mean, my my poor son, if he does join a fraternity, it'll be his decision. He'll get to pick the one he wants. But he's like, man, my last I can't even tell my last name. There's no way. They're gonna look <laughs> Well, I, uh, I want to talk independent IFCs. Uh, USC has been in the news uh, most recently, but you know they're the latest in uh, what seems like a, a fairly long line of campuses where you've seen a, a group of fraternities that have decided to, to walk away from recognition. And it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. It's a relatively new phenomenon. Um, really interesting to me that over the last few years, uh, fraternities at, at the national level and alumni at the local level have shown a lot more willingness to, to recognize and support chapters that are not recognized by their host institutions. And, and USC is just the latest example of that. What's driving this, right? When, when you look at this increased willingness to say, we don't, we don't need campus recognition, we're going to just go do our own thing. What are, what are the factors that are influencing this, this broader movement? Well, I want to start with the most important message is no CEO I work with wants to do this. All of us agree, and I've talked about all along that it's a it's a, a stool and there's three legs of the stool to support the chapter. It's a strong campus support, the local alumni and the national organization. Uh, and when those three are working in partnership, you have the highest degree of success of the chapter experience and thus all three sides win. Um, and most importantly, the students win. Uh, and 98.7% uh, of the chapters we have in our database are affiliated with their campus. So there isn't, at least at the national CEO level, a push to do this. But I think I've been around now in the business for uh well, I started, I joined in 1994, but I started working for Beta in 1997. We were talking about AFAs in 1999, in 2002, in 2008, you know, the need for partnership and collaboration. I can remember Jeff Kafad and Karen and Nish uh, doing a program in AFA on partnership. I think that was in, I, I bet it was around 1999. What people, and, and I, I'm going to go backwards a little bit before I go forwards to talk about USC. <clears throat> I think a watershed moment for this dynamic was the University of Virginia Rolling Stones article. Um, because that was kind of a moment where uh, 
You know, all these allegations were thrown out. They were terrible. I remember reading the article thinking, oh my God, this is awful. This is terrible. This is, this is so bad. Um, and, you know, instantly, uh, the reaction is shut it all down, you know, stop the system. They're all bad. It's, it's all bad. Yeah, many of us were like, God, this is awful. What am I, what are we doing? And I think there was this kind of immediate reaction of we got to just, you know, go at this um, in a way that was not ultimately fair to the students accused in that chapter, fair to the system that was labeled as all of the problem. And the way to handle all of the situations moving forward was often, well, we're just going to shut it all down. I don't care if your chapter has been doing what's right. And initially, I think at first blush, it sounds like a good strategy. But as I've really watched it play out, and we have written extensively about this, it's on our website, it actually does more damage. Um, I'm not talking about deferred recruitment yet, because that's part of the issue we've got at some of these independent systems. I'm talking about these mass suspensions and uh, doing accountability with a chainsaw instead of a scalpel. And I always tell people, if you're going to do accountability, you've got to cut the bad thing out of the living organism. But if you try to do surgery with a chainsaw, you end up bleeding far more than you need, and you end up hurting more of the body than you should have, and the good parts are actually damaged. And so when you sew it all back up, you've actually got a bigger problem than if you would have done nothing. Uh, but in the moment, you feel like you got to use a chainsaw to deal with it. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about mass suspensions where uh, there's a death and you need to slow down the system for a couple of weeks to reflect and think about what happened. That's, that's not where, what we're talking about. Nor, uh, you know, the University of Utah, I think, did something, uh, I call them like 30-second timeouts, you know, in sports where you're like, hey, the team's just not playing right. The coach calls a timeout and just says, hey, just get your heads in the game. You know, that those 10-day things that kind of slow it down, if you feel like you have to call a timeout, um, do it with the students, keep it short and keep it focused on, hey, all the things we agreed to, can we just double check there? That's not what I'm talking about here. Uh, when when we have systems shut down for months on end, where there is, the goalposts keep moving, uh, where students who are the good students who come with solutions are basically told, yeah, 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 sounds good, but um, given no agency and authority to fix it, um, where chapters are accused of things and put on interim suspension. In the case of USC, we have some groups that are now on their nine and a half month of interim action. Interim, quote unquote. Inter yeah, interim I'm doing air quotes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> what happens is it, you go from Will and Judd's telling our members and the alums, like, let's just work through this. There are some concerns and, you know, let's find partnership to, you know, by month four, you, I can't say that anymore. And by literally month seven, I'm just pleading with the university that this has got to change, um, that you're going to, you're going to create something you don't want. Um, I don't want to get into the specifics. I will, I will say, um, at the University of Southern California, Emily Sandell is a fantastic administrator. This isn't about one particular person. She's great. Anybody, she's terrific. You know, poor Devin, he goes to work there. Um, he walks into this mess. So this is bigger than one 
administrator. This is bigger than one issue. This has actually been building at the University of California since they announced deferred recruitment in 2017. And so all, I say all of this gentry because this what you saw last week is not just something that's out of control and it's going to be everywhere. Uh, we get calls all of the time from students and alums who are upset with their school that they want to go independent. We have a very prescriptive process that the governing council passed unanimously. I want to make sure everyone understands the decision to be affiliated or not rests solely with the member organization. So in other words, we, we have no control over what in my case, my organization, Bay Theta Pi, decides it's it's its decision. Everybody has a little different philosophy. Everybody has different levels of triggers, and everybody has different levels of local alums supporting it or not. Where the NIC gets involved is um, once we have a certain number decide to do it, then we have to have an interfraternity council because that's actually trademarked to the NIC, and that's where we really get involved um, in in the formation of the independent IFC. I will, but it's also clear that I have been advocating strongly in those situations. Don't do this. You're going to you're going to eventually push the benefit cost evaluation of the partnership to a point where a reasonable third party would say, "What is in it for me if this is how I'm going to be treated with interim action that goes on forever?" With um, or you know, in cases of moving forward, deferred recruitment, which there is no quality research that says it benefits the student. I can show you research recently from the University of Michigan Mental Health Studies that says fraternity men have lower anxiety and depression. This isn't the NIC study. This is higher education study or the student retention's higher. Um, I can tell you that I have worked with deferred campuses and non-deferred campuses, and I get the same phone calls about the same problems. And uh, I think you and I have said with your research, it's mixed what you see. Um, you, you may have a little lower hazing solidarity scores for those of you who join later on, but you have higher alcohol and substance abuse scores. That's right. And so in the end, what we're doing is we're starting to debate and discuss the wrong thing. I keep telling people when we get to the deferred recruitment question, we are going to debate deferred recruitment instead of what we agree on, which is regulating bad behavior and conduct. If we stay focused on conduct and performance outcomes and not restricting access to an experience <clears throat> is where you're going to find the biggest level of support at the national student alumni level to help deal with what we all agree with, which is accountability. Um, and so all of that to say, what happened at USC um, was just a, a mixture of all of those variables where we could not get resolution on the mass suspension that then rolled into interim action that went on for nine months. Uh, we don't have the inside workings of all of the cases, but when you have six or seven groups on interim action for nine months, it's very hard to argue that uh, their process is fair when most other schools wouldn't do that. Uh, and that's why we're here today. And I'm curious about this concept of partnership. And on one of the previous episodes with Justin Kirk and Jeremiah Shin and Ryan O'Rourke, we talked about the trust gap and, and you've been in this business even longer than I have. The, I, when I started this work, 
chapters had much better relationships with their host institutions than they did with their national headquarters. I mean, when I was at Alabama, that was our ultimate carrot to work with us was like, we don't have to get nationals involved in this, right? Like we can deal with this here. And, and something about that dynamic has changed, right? Where, where it's now more adversarial. And what I'm hearing you say is that kind of UVA Rolling Stone was that inflection point where the, the attitude began to shift but but it strikes me even in our data that that I just see that that alums and and undergraduate chapter leaders don't feel like they're getting helpful resources from their campuses that the the, the training they get relative to all the strings that are attached to campus recognition just isn't worth it anymore and and that makes it easier for groups to say why are we doing this, right? If, if if your house is not on campus, right? There are campuses where this would be harder to do. Alabama, the houses are all on university property. So an independent IFC can be tougher to spring up there, but a place like Southern Cal, houses are all off campus, all independently owned. We don't, we don't need all this. Why are we subjecting ourselves to these months long quote unquote interim suspensions when um, you're not even dealing with us in good faith. So I, 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 something has happened in that partnership conversation where groups just aren't seeing the same level of support and resources, like what we get from our partnership with the university ultimately isn't worth it. And that's a, that's a relatively recent change. Yeah, I, I will point to a couple of things. I, I don't think it's one thing. And I don't think campuses are all to blame. I mean, the amount of pressure now on higher education in, in accountability for everything is sure. so high that if I was in their shoes, I would un, I, I would feel that pressure. And in that pressure, I would have an urgency to act and I would be less concerned about relationships. I would also then realize by doing that, I'm going to create all kinds of new problems that could make it worse. So let me give you an example. Back in the day, the Greek advisor used to often do the discipline or the dean of students. So we separated that out. I actually argued at the AFA level we should separate that out because people don't like the Greek advisor, blah, blah, blah. Right? But it, in the end, they moved it more and more to student conduct, which used to originally focus more on student conduct, not organizational conduct. But they, they took on more and more of the org conduct. Um, in theory, on paper, sounds great. In reality, the people in student conduct do not emphasize, value, care as much about a partnership with the alumni or the national organization as the fraternity or sorority life advisor who is more knows the people. Or when the dean of students, when he or she would make these decisions, it was a person. It was not a process. Um, that isn't to say that all conduct offices are bad. There's some really good ones out there. But generally speaking, they are more focused on restorative justice and partnership and working students through student development than they are about protecting the reputational harm of their school, not that that's not important, or um, worried about the federal guidelines that are actually much more broad than they're interpreted. Or the lawsuits. I, I think anybody would have to see all of this to understand it. But the net effect is um, 
people feel completely cut out of accountability. They feel like the agency authority of their experience has been taken. When you have your agency and this authority uh, feeling lost, um, you resent that. You actually put your head down and resist it. You just don't see it. Um, that's a big piece of what's happened here, Gentry. Uh, and I think over time, what we have to do to put it back together is like what we did at the uh, this May. We brought all the vice presidents student affairs together from the SEC. We didn't. I mean, they they brought us and a bunch of fraternity CEOs. And you know what we did for a day and a half? We talked to each other eyeball to eyeball. We talked about shared concerns. We talked about common problems we're facing. We talked about in the moment of stress, let's not uh, run to our corners. Let's work together. Uh, and all of the CEOs walked away thinking that was the best 36 hours they had spent all year long because they were talking and building relationships. And, and not to say that the people that the FSAs that reported them shouldn't be involved with. I think we should do it at all levels, but it's just good old fashioned trust building. Uh, we have lost that the, and for various reasons. And uh, I would argue we need to bring it back. I would also argue that um, the value that fraternities bring to young men today with our mental health crisis is perhaps more important than it's ever been to a college campus. We just sometimes don't recognize the needs of boys like we should, young men like we should, and we don't understand that the brotherhood uh, with its flaws that we often know about also provides enormous benefit to these young men and gives them support that they can't and don't find elsewhere on campus. All of the research, whether it's the dyad, whether it's the research we've done with uh, our, our research teams out of Tennessee, um, whether it is um, just story after story of mental health, we actually did a, a study of how did COVID impact our members. And one of the most powerful things that we learned from the research was the most important research the students found during campus or the most important resource they found on campus was their own fraternity brothers to get them through it. Um, there's tremendous value in fraternity. And if we come to it with that, and then we go at the accountability, which we all want with a scalpel and not a chainsaw, through relationships, I think 90 to 95% of our problems go away. I would also say this, system-wide action, we peaked, I think it was the 19 or 2019, 2018, 2019 school year, uh, we recorded over 20 system-wide actions. Last year, we had two that went beyond uh, 20 days. I think people have learned it, it doesn't work. It doesn't fix it. Um, it's causing more problems. Uh, and deferred recruitment, to be honest, um, we're dealing with the situation at one school. I don't want to get into that on the podcast. There's been a net, there's been a net less number of campuses because they've come to the conclusion that, hey, we still are dealing with all these problems. We just maybe need to look at this a different lens. So I think it's actually getting better. And I think we could focus on USC and not focus on the things we don't know about or hear about, which is a lot of these kind of concerns are going away. One of the things I'm interested in getting your perspective on, and it's a deeper philosophical question, 
you know, we talk about this idea of the system-wide shutdowns and treating everyone the same. And I'm, I'm actually an advocate of the fact, and Jeremiah Shin talks about this, that fraternities should be treated differently. They shouldn't all be treated the same. But most, to your point earlier, most vice presidents of student affairs aren't savvy enough or knowledgeable enough to know that landscape in terms of, of, of how groups should be treated. I think about, you know, on one hand, groups like SIGEP or Delta Upsilon, you know, NIC members have gone above and beyond even the NIC's own health and safety standards in terms of substance-free housing. They're different from groups like, well, I won't mention other groups that haven't adopted those same health and safety standards. Um, and uh, aren't, being good partners at the at the national level, how do you how do you answer the question of, uh, around? Yes, yeah, should should fraternities be treated differently? Well, I think I, I think in some ways I can understand the argument, but where you win is the groups who are causing problems should be held accountable. The right. student leaders, regardless of who they belong to that are doing the good things and fighting the good fight should not be labeled the same way and cast aside. Uh, and they should be supported and encouraged and they should be rewarded for doing the right thing. So when I say I'm being treated the same way, I'm talking about like, you know, there, I got news for people. There will always be a chapter or two on campus that are troublemakers because you're going to close that chapter I watched this at, at Oxford, Ohio. I lived there for 18 years. I literally watched the problem move around campus. Mm -hmm. There'll be an element of students that join each year, these organizations. They'll find each other. They'll come in and they will ruin the experience of that chapter and will blame the national organization when actually it's the same. It's usually, if you really look, it's the same kids coming from the same high school zip codes of the problems. Yep. Right. So I would argue maybe you need to look at the high school zip codes in your admissions process. But my point larger is there's also a bunch of chapters of good kids and guys wanting to do the right thing or guys struggling with the right thing. And here's what they hear and see and observe when they feel like if I turn something in or if something is, is wrong and I report it, my chapter will get shut down or my chapter next door will get shut down. Or in the case of Title IX at USC, towards this year, we started getting phone calls from student leaders like, we've got something that happened in our chapter, what do we do? We will not tell the university. This literally happened to us three times this spring because we don't want to get my chapter shut down. We just got back on things. And yet this guy did this, we've kicked him out of the chapter. We don't know what to do. When I say fraternities being treated with a chainsaw, I'm talking about we're just going to mow it all down. Right. Everybody gets their right arm cut off. I don't care if your right arm's good or bad. It's all getting cut off. It actually causes more damage to the entire body than you needed. And the recovery process takes a lot longer. Right? I think another huge problem we've got is people on campuses who work in the fraternity and sorority life offices, especially people that are newer to the job, 
do not value, prioritize, think about the opportunity to engage alums locally and how they could help. They often uh, first want to work and focus on building relationships with students, totally get it. Um, and often either intentionally or unintentionally cut out alumni advisors from the governance of the experience of their community. And that over time creates an effect where the alums feel like they have no agency. They don't feel like they're being engaged. And when you feel that way, the natural human tendency is to then make that side that did that to you, you question their motives and their right. intentions. And that happens all of the time. Uh, I, I, it's I, unnecessarily I, adversarial, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's not awesome. even that we see you as part of the problem. It's just that we're not valuing you and bringing you in as part of the solution. And so I, I suspect your motives. I suspect why you're keeping me at arm's length. And, and that, that breeds an, an adversarial relationship. It does. It does. And then, and then they start seeing accountability at chapters and they start creating this confirmation bias because they don't have a relationship with the host institution to understand the nuance. They don't trust the people because they don't know them. They've never had coffee with them. And it just keeps spiraling. And if I, you know, you asked me what my advice is, um, if I was a campus professional, you're probably hearing some of this and, and you're, you're upset that I'm even talking about it. But my advice to you is to, for everyone meeting with a student, do a meeting with an alum. That's good advice. I had a young Greek advisor once tell to me that helping recruit and onboard and train chapter advisors was not part of their job. And I said, you're then you're not going to be very good at your job. If that's your outlook, like you are one person, they are in every chapter meeting every week, right? Like why would you not want to exert your vision and your energy and your leadership through those people who are literally in every chapter meeting every week? It makes zero sense to me. And it, it may not be technically their job or technically they may not have the authority to point the volunteer fair, <clears throat> but those that exist, they have a really great opportunity they're missing because when it gets rough, I can always tell what administrations have strong partnerships locally and which don't. Sure. Um, and in those critical moments, uh, I can give you, I, I usually come back and I sit down with Will and I'm like, oh, this will be fine. They'll be able to work through it. Or in the case of other schools, it's like, oh, this, this could get really rough because the relationship is very damaged before it, let alone after. So, so my that, advice, oh, my advice to campus people, again, I want to keep it pretty simple. For every meeting you have with a student, try to have one with an alum. Try to make the outreach. It won't happen fast, but over time you will win them over and you will see the value they bring to the table and you will net more in time. That does not mean you have to put up with the, with the alum who's terrible and doesn't, you know, is like, contrary to where you think the uh, school should be going, but there's a lot of people that once you work through their natural first resistance, you actually find out we're mostly all in. And they'll see value in you through those relationships, yep. which will make your job easier. If you're not, if you don't have people on your phone that you're texting chapter advisors or house core officers, and, and it's like a genuine friendly text about stuff, then you're missing a huge opportunity to create real influence in the community. Absolutely. You talked about vice presidents earlier. Obviously, when you look at a lot of these shutdowns, 
ultimately these stem from higher level decisions about things like system-wide shutdowns, deferred recruitment, interim suspensions. What are the red lines, right? I mean, when you think about the decision that a group or a, a collective of groups would make to, to make this decision and walk away from campus recognition, are there are there lines in the sand that if they're crossed, like it drastically increases the likelihood that that this sort of thing is going to happen? Yeah, they're on our website. There are position statements. We went and refreshed them all uh, right before COVID. Uh, we've done webinars on them. Uh, but when you get down to it, the two places where we spend an enormous amount of time resolving, which is access to recruitment um, and uh, system-wide actions. We spend a lot less time on those two issues, though, now. We will focus on USC for a little bit, but in reality, our team spends a heck of a lot less time on those two issues because I think in the end, people have come to, on the system-wide action, they've come to learn it's not in their best interest, mm -hmm. not because the NIC's told them that. They've, they've come to learn through their own experience or others that this isn't in our best interest to do this. This is going to make and, everyone mad without solving any of our problems. And, and you know, and, and to be fair to the Vice President of Student Affairs, often they're told by their president and or sure. general counsel, we are doing this, we are going to do this. Um, but I think in time it's shown that like, well, you know, other schools didn't and they had the same thing and they now have a better relationship with the community we have to work with when this is over. Uh, and then deferred recruitment, I think people have just begun to actually look at it from more of a lens of like, is there a value add or not? We are not, we are most, our board has told us we only have to focus on new policies. We don't have to focus on existing campuses to do this work. That isn't to say that we don't talk to existing campuses about the value of, of more open recruitment systems. But again, we, we just don't spend near as much time as people think on that. We actually spend a lot of time. And if you're an IFC officer or a local advisor out there listening to the podcast, and you're going to call me up and say, we want to do this in our community. This isn't some willy-nilly thing that the governing council passed. It has strict parameters, strict enforcement of our position statements. There has to be an infraction. We have a, a recourse time. The governing council uh, has to be notified. And then in the end, it's up to individual organizations. It is not something we jump to. And we just put back the relationship at Sam Houston State uh, that was uh, strain over the last two years. I would say there have been, if you want to talk about an administrator who really got in there and did good work, um, uh, I'm forgetting the gentleman's name uh, that ran the process, but he basically stepped in from the president's cabinet and said, I'm a strategic planner. I'm going to come in. I'm going to listen to everyone's concerns. He addressed them and really brought all the groups back together. Uh, that's positive. We've had good conversations with Kansas State University. Um, now, keep in mind, Kansas State kind of distanced themselves, and now they want to come back and what we think are good ideas. And we, again, <laughs> I'm not going to name names, but a lot of schools that may be listening to this, you know, because we reach out. When we get a phone call from a campus IFC or a person, our team is instructed to call the FSA immediately and be like, hey, I just want to let you know so-and-so reached out to me, and they want to go independent. We've advised them on this. I think you need to go listen to their concerns. Um, so I, I think the broader topic of accountability with a scalpel instead of a chainsaw for every one call to a student you do to your alums, if we do that and we focus on not on restricting access to the fraternity experience, but restricting the bad behavior or poor academic outcomes, 
if we stay in that zone, I don't think we'll ever do a podcast about this again. <laughs> Always the goal. All the the narrative that's been in the media about USC has had to deal with health and safety and groups wanting. I, I think one of the articles I read said skirt health and safety rules. And and this question of health and safety comes up a lot, right? When you talk about independent IFCs, that a lot of that, when you think about the three legs of the stool that you referenced earlier, and that's an analogy a, a lot of us have used who work in this business, the university is the biggest leg when it comes to accountability, safety, they're there every day. They're most likely to observe the behavior. You know, previous episode, Justin Kirk went back and you talked about, we look through all of our reports that we get on chapters and where they come from. Most of them are coming from the campus, right? So when, when a group of chapters like the eight that have walked at USC walk away from university recognition, how do you, um, how do you make up for that, right? I mean, how do you, there's now this lack of oversight. This one leg has been completely removed. What are you all encouraging your member organizations to do? What are they doing? What are you all doing to ensure that you're not missing this huge new piece now in terms of, of health and safety when groups walk away from campus recognition? Well, I, I'm going to start with challenging the concept that that, that USC has no uh role and accountability of the fraternity community. Um, the code of conduct for hazing and alcohol and drug use, and frankly, they can they can apply Title IX to the unrecognized community. It, the guidelines say they're not obligated, but they do not say that they cannot. That's right. And so I would argue very clearly, they actually have the, the and let's be clear, the students, are far less concerned about having their chapter shut down than being expelled from school. This is the next thing. Like we, one of the problems is we use chapter accountability as the tool of accountability instrument because it's a lot easier to do it to the group than it is to the individual because the individual has a lot more due process rights and individuals often hire lawyers and it's a lot harder and sure. I understand. But if you really wanna change behavior, expel the students. And you may not be able to say Judd Horace got expelled, but you can say we expelled four kids this year for hazing and six kids for sexual misconduct and seven kids for hosting unregistered legal events um, who may, who happen to have lived in this area. You can do that. So I don't completely buy it. Now that sure. being said, I do have a better, stronger accountability system when they're all working in partnership. I totally agree with that 100%. Um, and that is exactly why this is not a willy-nilly thing that anyone can do at any time. And we're just going to go plant our flag. There is lots of strict protocols because we think that the partnership is in the best interest of everyone if it's fair and balanced. I'm also curious, Judd, about this idea of once the, the horse is out of the barn, to use a Tennessee colloquialism, you know, what to those campuses that are already experiencing this, what advice would you give to them? And, and specifically, can you bring these groups back into the fold? Or is this Pandora's box that once it's opened, there's no there's no reharnessing things? How how do we move back towards that ideal scenario with all three of those entities working together once a, a group has made the decision like like those eight chapters at, at USC? 
Well, there's two variables. Uh, one, can we resolve the original concern? Um, and two, uh, how did the breakup go? I'm gonna be really clear. If your breakup announcement includes labeling people as trying to skirt the rules and chafing at rules, you may feel good when you wrote that letter and it may felt good to a few people that read it, read it at first, but I can tell you uh, that is going to make it infinitely harder for us to put this back together someday. Uh, so how you break up is important. I think Duke did a really good job on the breakup. And to be honest, the students have told us multiple times, if we can get the sophomore deferred recruitment resolved at Duke, they want to go back. Right? Despite all of the tension, um, I think there's a better chance there than anywhere else. Uh, Sam Houston State proved it. Um, those alums and students were very mad, and they came back. Uh, our situation in Reno, I think we can get it resolved, but ultimately it's going to take some rebuilding relationships because it didn't break up that well. Colorado is going to be hard. I'm sorry, Stephanie. I think it's just going to be hard to put it together, and um, I will name names there. It was so obvious, and it's been going on for so long. Right. Um, that, that being said, I, I, I think that you can put it back together if you can resolve the original concern and if we can keep the breakup as amicable as possible. We just proved it at Sam Houston State, and I have hope about Kansas State. And uh, if Duke would reconsider their sophomore deferred, I think we could put it back together there. I think USC is going to take a little while uh, because of a lot of issues before the breakup and then I think what you say in public with words are really important in writing. And I feel like now the constituents, uh, they're dug in to prove each other right and wrong. Throwing your own students under the bus, generally not a good PR strategy. It's a great PR strategy. It's not a good strategy to put it back together. <laughs> Makes things a bit more difficult. I really enjoyed my conversation with Judd. I always felt like there's just this Midwestern earnestness about him, and I really appreciated him coming on the podcast. The only area where I wish I'd pushed him a bit more is on this issue of how we view groups at the national level. The fact is there are a handful of groups that seem to be part of every single announcement about independent IFCs, willing to walk away at any perceived slight. There are other groups who you rarely see on those lists, who only make the decision to walk away after exhausting literally every single possibility. I think it's important that we name that and point it out, and I probably should have pushed Judd a bit more on that issue. I also appreciated Judd's comments about the importance of working with and building relationships with chapter advisors. Ultimately, breakups like what we're seeing at USC are harder if there's good faith built on solid relationships between the administration and the alumni. We have to get back to a world in which campus-based fraternity and sorority advisors and alumni advisors are able to see past surface-level differences and begin working in partnership to support undergraduate chapters. An old boss of mine used to say, relationships are all that we have. In this case, I think that's really good advice. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.